Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to She and Her. I'm Sandra Davidson. And I am Anita Rao. It's great to be back on the show, and we are thrilled to bring you our second episode of this brand new season. You are about to hear a conversation that we recorded with a woman named Alexandra Zegbayou, who is an activist and leader in Durham, North Carolina. Alexandra is the executive director of Student U, which is a college access organization that empowers students to succeed in college and beyond. She's worked there for the last 10 years, ever since she graduated from college at UNC. Yes, and I have known Alexandra since college or a little bit thereafter, and she is what people call a third culture kid, which I am myself. It's someone who was raised in a culture different from their parents. She was born in Montreal, which is where her parents met. Uh, They were in grad school at the time. Her mom is from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and her father is from the Ivory Coast. She moved back to the Ivory Coast with her family when she was four years old, and she grew up there until the summer before she turned 10. Her family fled the country at that time because of civil unrest, and they landed in North Carolina, and she has been here ever since. Alexandra's life has taken a number of twists and turns, and we invited her on the show to talk about the many new beginnings she's had and how her journey does and doesn't intersect with the social justice work she does today. Our conversation began with Alexandra painting a picture of what her childhood in the Ivory Coast was like. Here's Alex. So the tropics have warm, so I don't remember wearing pants until I moved to the U.S. because (laughs) I was always in dresses and running around. Um, I did not love school, but I was good at it. Like, I got in trouble all the time. I talked too much. I did it and tried to be good at it because it mattered to my parents, but definitely it was like a chore for me. I was, I think I was bored in some ways about school. Um, I danced growing up, so that's a big part of my experience. We also in the Ivory Coast, there like tradition of um, restaurants called Mackey's that are on the beach. And so every Sunday after church, my family would go to those and those were like the traditions that really rooted our lives. And then because my Father's from the Ivory Coast, lots of cousins. My dad is one of eight, um, so I grew up with them, always around. So when I think of the Ivory Coast, I think of those things. And then a lot of love, a lot of joy, a lot of curiosity, a lot of adventure. My dad loves Christmas, so Christmas was a really big deal, even though there's 
no snow anywhere near the <laughs> Ivory Coast, but like every year all of my dad's friends would bring all of their friends to our house and there was a Santa Claus who typically was my dad's friend who's like Lebanese so as close to white as my dad could <laughs> find and there's a like there is a center suit and like we all got our presents sitting on Santa's lap and then we had lunch or brunch afterwards that was made by all of the women and the mothers and so those are like the fond memories that I have and then we had to leave because the war was coming and my family was in danger. So we fled and moved to the U.S. So those are, like, in some ways, like, very stark differences of the first decade of my life. What was um, the, your experience of America or your knowledge of the United States at that point in your life? Yeah, so... My mother grew up in Belgium for some part of her life because her dad is a urologist, so she had grown up in Europe. And because my parents went to school in North America, we actually had traveled to America before. So coming to the U.S. was not necessarily the novelty. The novelty was, oh, we're not going home, right? Mm -hmm. Like coming to the U.S. is actually like pretty standard. Uh, Probably every two to three years we would travel on vacation. But what was different was like, oh, this is our home. How long are we going to be here? Why are we here? What's happening? I'm very confused. Uh, I had big plans about what middle school was going to be like in the Ivory Coast, right? Uh, and so I think that that was the moment of, like, our life is about to be drastically different, but I'm not quite sure how I can fully comprehend it. Will you um, talk Will you talk about that like how you got that information so you were 10 when you Mm -hmm. found out that you guys were leaving can you walk us through that story yeah I was wearing a white shirt fishnet with like a little bandeau and a red skirt with flowers my hair was braided and like up to the side I'd gone to a friend's birthday her name was Maeva Uli and our driver came and picked me up We drove to the house. We pulled into our villa, and all of the lights were off, which was unusual. It's like, oh, I don't know what's happening. And then I walked into the house. I went to my parents' bedroom. My dad was not there. It was just my mom, my older sister, and my younger brother. And my mom said, your your dad is leaving. He's driving out of the country. He's going to fly out of Ghana, and we need to leave. In the next week, all of us will be leaving to go to the U.S. We don't know how long. It might just be for the summer. And then there wasn't a lot of conversation after that. And so my mom and brother left after that, maybe a day or two. And then my sister and I stayed with my cousin. Um, And then we left. We were the last to leave. And we flew through Senegal. And we all landed in New York City. Um, and we're reunited. And so then it was like some amount of excitement of like, oh, it's the U.S. I love the U.S. actually. But then some sense of like something here is off and I can't quite figure out, fully understand why we're here and like meeting people that I haven't met before. And I ask a lot of questions and my parents look afraid right like there's like I can I can sense fear and I can sense uh, I think even for themselves not not quite understanding how drastically different our lives were going to be or what was the period of instability 
I think in their mind they thought maybe six months, maybe a year. The fact that I've lived in the U.S. for 20 years and that most of that time has not been with my biological parents, I don't believe that's what they thought our lives would become. And so that is a that is a life-altering experience for all parties. Um, and I'm really fortunate. I have a great family, and my parents are wonderful, and I can only imagine what it must have been like for them as parents to not be able to give us certainty about the future um, because I know they feel a lot of responsibility to be able to provide for us and make sure we're safe but they were trying to process that for themselves as they were processing it with their children who were young and, like me, asking a lot of questions, which they nurtured. Did you have a sense growing up that your parents were political people or people for whom what was happening in the country was going to be, there was going to be any tension, or were you kind of oblivious to that? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, yes and no. Um... My dad had a fairly large career in the Ivory Coast. My father's life has been in public health. Um, And so in his role, um, one of them, essentially he was like the deputy secretary of health for the Ivory Coast. Um, And so there were seasons of life where there were like bodyguards in our home, like people going to school with us and like, staying at the front of the school while my sister and I were in school. So some amount of, like, my parents are important. My dad's job is a big deal. It's big to the point where there's someone who needs to go to school with me, but I don't really understand what we're talking about. And I know there was a lot of, like, dinners at our house that I had to get dressed up for Mm -hmm. and, like, play the part, and my mom would make all this food, right? So there was a sense of, like, whatever they are doing matters and also people like knew us like when when I would say my name people could like associate it with my parents but I I never thought as a child that my life was in danger right like as an adult now I'm like well if you had a bodyguard (laughs) at school you should be mindful that something here is off but I never put those I never put those pieces of the puzzle together as a child which in some ways I'm grateful that I didn't otherwise I would have like lived with some amount of anxiety in ways that I didn't that's so I did a story a couple of years ago on a Syrian refugee family who came to Durham and I one of the um, family members was getting a degree in architecture Mm -hmm. and she left that behind and I remember thinking when she came to the U.S., she was just trying to find any kind of work. And I just thought how difficult that must be to come as a highly skilled person into a country where you're... The, she was the only person in her family who could speak mm-hmm. English at the time and how much of a um, life shift that must be like. Do you remember picking up on that with your parents did your parent were your parents able to take what they were doing in the ivory coast and translate that to what they did in the u.s when they were here yeah so my parents stint in the ivory in the u.s ended up being short they were here for about they were here from 99 and i think by 2001 they had left but the answer to that is no so my you know 
deputy secretary of health in a country. Right. My dad worked at Pizza Hut when we first got here, and then he worked at NC State, and I'm not even quite sure what he did. But certainly not uh, matching his career or uh, giftings for the world. Um, But what I would say, things I've been foundational even in those experiences, is I, I don't remember my parents expressing resentment or expressing like this work is beneath us. I think that I um, watched my parents like do what they felt was necessary in order to care for my siblings. And I was with my dad this June in Montreal with my siblings and we like went to brunch and we were going for a walk and my dad is much older now and we are much older and adults and I'm really grateful that he's able to see us all well and um, we were talking about, you know, what he hopes for us. And I, I think I was asking him questions. And he said, you know, we try to teach you all uh, to love your family, to love one another, to feel that it is important to contribute your giftings to the world in order to make it a better place and to have the belief that you can always begin again mm-hmm. and that there's always an opportunity for newness. Um and I do think that that is something that is very true in my own disposition. Like, I'm very uh, excited about new. I think of obstacles as opportunities to grow, to be different, to be challenged. But I never connected that to a uh, to an intentional rearing that my parents did. But to hear my dad at this stage of his life where he has gone through all of these things to be able to say, like, I hope for you that you know that no matter what happens in your life, you can begin again, I think speaks to the kind of, like, humility that he has um, and hopefulness that the world can be better. And so I feel like those are probably protective factors, right, from going from where he was uh, in his career to the reality of being in a place that was drastically different and yet to hold on to the belief that this might be temporary and we can begin again. And also my dad, you know, didn't learn how to read till he was seven and grew up in a village and his father was illiterate, right? And so I think there's also some, um, maybe where he was, was both unfamiliar but also familiar and that like this is humble and worthy and honorable work, um, which feels important seems so important to have that modeled to you when you're in that time of extreme transition because I can imagine coming to the U.S. You only spoke French at the time, right? Yeah, no English. I mean, I could say like water, <laughs> but like, yeah, no. But then you were just thrown into school and to be able to approach that with a sense, I don't know how much of a sense of curiosity you had at that point, but to feel like this idea of newness was could be an opportunity versus a burden. I can imagine at that stage that's an important Yeah, energy. and in some ways, I come from like a traditional African family where there's like no opt out. Like this is where we are, and you're gonna do the work. And so I, I, you know, my parents made strategic choices. We like I was in an ESL program that wasn't working out for me, so my mom took me out of ESL. We moved to a different school. My mom was helping me do my homework. She, in some ways, like strategize me learning how to speak English like I had I took the required courses but then all my electives were in French so I was learning English while other people were learning French right because they give you those worksheets that's like water is oh and and other people were learning French I was learning English and then my mom would help me do my homework 
So I think that both they held that, but what it translated to me and my siblings is that they were present. Like my mother was present, my parents were bilingual, and I think we, I did have an amount of privilege. My parents were educated in North America. My parents were bilingual. My mom went to the school and was like, I understand that she doesn't speak English and this math is still beneath her. Mm. (laughs) Like she, I was in honors classes and I didn't speak English, right? I think, again, at the time, I probably felt like, oh, my mom is so annoying. (laughs) (laughs) And now I, you know, I can look back and say like, what a gift to be able to have the time, the foresight to say, no, like this is not, my daughter is capable of more and I'm going to hold the school accountable. Um, And I went to private school in the Ivory Coast, right? So very different, it was a very different experience um, for me. So I think my parents called that that hope, but then it translated into like, here are the things you have to do and we're gonna make sure you do them and we're gonna support you along the way so that you can succeed, so yeah. So what was your identity development like being, I mean, not being able to socialize uh, easily, I'm guessing, <laughs> with other students? Middle school is a tragic time for most human beings of like so many hormonal changes. And so like yeah, you and add like barrier. breast and deodorant <laughs> and hips and I don't and know, hair plans. and like, right? And like, and then you add on top of that like, culture dynamics and not speaking English and you have like a little bit of a mess right (laughs) I I mean I tell this story often of going like the limited two was a big deal so like my mom is like very fashionable so like I had the pieces to be fashionable but I did not put them together well (laughs) so it was like this outfit that I loved it was like white and it had a limited two like I don't know riding on the front and they were purple capris and I had these Nike sneakers, but like I would like top it off with like tights underneath mm. because I was cold, <laughs> right? Because I'm used to like right. it being 90 degrees. And so that's like, that's like middle school in a picture <laughs> in some ways. And it's also interesting of like who, like who took me in in some ways. I felt like the, I was, uh, dancer in the Ivory Coast so I was in the, in the dance company in middle school which I think like felt like home like this is something I knew how to do and I didn't need to speak like I could just dance and that felt like safety but also like I remember sixth grade it was like almost like a group of white girls who like I don't I don't remember like deeply feeling connected to them but they were like always around and nice to me but like in hindsight I feel like I was kind of like a project to Mm. them right um and I remember things like well you know you're different than those right like at the time I didn't understand like now I can like I have a lot of language to explain what was happening to me without understanding it um or I remember like telling people about my life and people saying like your life is so cool and I think I remember even then being like, actually, this is really traumatic. Mm. Right. There is, like, nothing cool about the story that I'm telling you. Like, people shouldn't have to flee their countries for safety. But it was, like, this, this like, novelty. So I felt highly visible in that I was different than everyone else, and everyone knew it. And so that was middle school. And so, like, finding myself in that felt challenging um, for me. 
And your parents left right after you graduated from middle school? Is that right? Eighth grade. Eighth grade. So between eighth grade and ninth grade, my parents moved back to the Ivory Coast, um, and I started to live with my uncle. But by that time, I speak English fluently, right? I think I have more of a sense of, like, social dynamics, like, how do schools work? Like, who are the cool kids? I was cool in the Ivory Coast. Like, I was... (laughs) Like, I was very cool. Actually, I was kind of a bully. We don't have to talk about that season (laughs) in my life. But, like, by eighth grade, I had, like, figured the things out. And then I think in some ways this was a gift. I ended up going to a high school that is outside of the district that my middle school was in. And so high school felt like a clean slate. No one knew me. No one knew that, like, I came to the U.S. and didn't speak English. Mm. And so it was, like, this opportunity you know, thinking about the themes of my dad to begin again and to, like, really think about who I could become in a space that was free of the trauma of the transition into the U.S., um, which was a gift. But, again, another big transition is, at that point, my parents are no longer in the in, in the United States, and so living in the U.S. with an uncle and an aunt and a cousin and a sister who's, at that time... NC State already felt very challenging. Like high school was like a both like a a moment of like refining myself, but I a lot of high school was also very dark. Like if I were to diagnose myself now, I would say that I was depressed Mm. and that I and that school became a thing that I was good at. And so I put all of my energy to that, but I did not talk about my mother's illness. I did not talk about fleeing the Ivory Coast. Like, all of those things were bubbled up and put on a shelf in order to perform academically. My uncle dies while I'm in high school. I very rarely talk about it. Um, and so there's a lot of almost, like, survival skills that probably I learned through middle school that become applied in high school, and I do well in high school. But I, I'm, I don't believe that I was taking care of my mental health well during that time. And to be honest, I didn't have, I didn't, I couldn't, right? Like I, I think being able to take care of your mental health is a privilege. That is really hard when you, when you are in survival mode. And so I was surviving, although I looked like I was thriving on the outside. Now that you school. have the benefit of hindsight. Are there things that you can remember from that time that made you feel more safe and comforted than others, either people or circumstances or situations? Yeah. um, So my high school best friend's name is Christian Jones, and her parents are pastors, and in some ways they take me in, and I become like the additional child in their family, and... I spend a lot of time with them, and they're very kind to me. Um, So they felt like safety. I danced in high school. I felt like safety. I was a good student, so I knew that I could perform in class. That felt like safety. I have three cousins, Joella, Junior, and Ketia, and I spent, and Claudia, Ketia is my sister, Um, and I spend a lot of time with them, and that feels like safety for me in high school. Um, I think those are the things that I held on to that made that season um, 
bearable. And then I have, you know, for me, the gift of an older sister that took on a lot of responsibility and her friends who were present. I mean, my sister was in college and we ended up living together. And so I don't think at the time I fully understood what it meant to be the ages that we were and for her to carry the responsibility of caring for me. Um, But without, you know, her provision of a house and the basic things that I needed in order to go to school, like this, like we don't get to where I am today without that. Um, And so those are the things that feel significant in high school. So she went through many of the same transitions that you went through, and she stepped up to the plate for you. Now that you're a grown woman, do you talk about that time with each other? And do you have a sense of what it was like for her? Yeah, I mean, I think my sister and I's relationship has grown so much. Um, I think that my sister was not given a choice, right? She didn't actually choose to care for me, it was just like bestowed upon her, right? In the like, I don't believe there was a conversation of like, do you want to now become Alex's legal guardian? (laughs) It was like, oh, our uncle is dead. I do not have somewhere to live. And so I think that she took on the burden of caring for me And I think if we're going to be honest, that's what it was, right? To be in college, which in the American conception is a time of freedom and exploration and finding out who you want to be and not having responsibility, found herself where she had to make consistent decisions about both her own curiosity and desires for her life and a sister that she loved but also felt responsible for without choosing. And so I think, you know, we're much older. My sister's gone to law school. She's worked at Goldman Sachs. Um, She lives in Montreal. She's a certified yoga instructor, you know. She's doing well, and our relationship is healthy, but we had to, like, process that, right, of, like, the fact that I felt, I very much so felt like I was burdening her, and I think that she experienced that at some point, and, and that showed up in our relationship, right? We... When you are siblings, you are peers. When one person becomes a de facto parent, it changes the dynamic of the relationship. And I think that both created a lot of, like, deep affinity for each other, but also some distance of, like, I wish this were different, and I wish you weren't telling me what to do because you're actually not my mom. Mm. But you are kind of like my mom because she's not here. And, ah, how do we navigate this? Um, And so it was challenging. But I'm so grateful to her. I'm not, I do not believe that I would have had the strength and capacity and foresight to be able to do what she did for me. And that is a reality that I sit with every day. Was there ever a question of you going home? Or I guess by home, I mean, that probably didn't, I don't know how much that felt like home, but back with your parents, back to the Ivory Coast. Yeah, I hoped for that. 
but after ninth grade when that didn't happen I was like okay that is not happening right it was no longer useful to ask and so it was your parents that were saying no we want you to stay there wasn't that much conversation I mean the Ivory Coast was going also through still a civil war while I was in high school so there wasn't a lot of stability um at home like in the country but my mom was also not well my mom is bipolar and so the combination of both of those things and my dad was raising really young children there's seven of us the two my sister and I are the oldest and we were here and he was in some ways now a single parent Mm. managing all of those responsibilities and so I think it I think it was a decision that was almost like made in silence but was not going to be changed like you are going to be there um and that was hard I mean I it took a lot of therapy and processing right to be able to like acknowledge that um, that I felt abandoned, that I felt like I wasn't worthy of coming home, that I I created narrations and stories of what was happening until I was able to actually have conversations with my father and understand that like what I was experiencing and everyone was having a hard time. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a child, I I couldn't understand the big picture. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So you graduate from high school, you go to UNC. Go Heels. Go Heels. (laughs) We're all Tar Heels here. And then while at UNC, you get introduced to a program called Student U in Durham, which was the beginning of a long relationship. I do believe. Long term. (laughs) Partnership. (laughs) Marriage. (laughs) We're in this. So, So can you tell us a little bit about Student U? You're here today sitting with us as the executive director of it. You went, you interned for them Mm -hmm. when you were an undergraduate at UNC. So give us a sense of what it does, because there is a lot of powerful um, overlap with, I think, what it is that you do for young people in our Mm -hmm. community and, and what you've gone through. Yeah, I mean, I think Student U and, you know, lots of other places become a place where my story makes sense. Mm. Um, And by that I mean 
you know, this idea from my father, like, you can begin again, and this deep understanding of the power of education and what it can do for communities in ways that high school and middle school are extremely turbulent for me, but my academics become my way to stability, right? And and even into communities that become the safe space that I need in order to be successful. And so I think my experience of Student U when I came there that first summer um, was like incredible possibility. And in some ways, seeing myself in my students. And I think I always try to be clear that my story is not that of my students, right? Like my story is is uh, there's trauma here and there's lots of twists and turns and I try to be clear not to ascribe that kind of experience to all of our students, right? Like what we know for sure is that they're from Durham and that for most of them, they'll be the first ones in their families to go to college and they're brilliant and they have hopes and they have dreams and that like that's where it like full stop. We can say that about them and the rest becomes individualized in their lives. Um, but I come there thinking that I'm going to work there for a summer, right? And it's like, oh, sure, this is an Apple's internship. I'm trying to figure out if teaching is a thing. And then I fall in love with, with these children who are now college graduates. And at the time, the organization is making the decision to start a high school program. So I come on and I build that. And while we're doing that work, I start to do a lot of research around college. And so we decide to follow our students through college graduation and now we are about to graduate our third cohort of college graduates this May. And so in a short decade, we've gone from an organization that started as a middle school only program that we would work with young people, give them summer experiences that unleash the power of their potential and their creativity and continue to help them fall in love with learning in order to foster their academic experience beyond our time and to support them through college. And we add high school and we are at college and now we are an organization that works with students and their parents and educators in Durham to be a part of building a community that feels more just and equitable by investing in the leadership potential of our students and their families and and the educators who come through our building and that feels like a gift to have been able to see the organization grow I mean we talk organizationally about discovering our best selves and reaching our full potential and dreaming fearlessly and energizing our community. Um, And in the decade that I've been there, I've been able to see those values be true in my own life, but also watch an organization continue to ask itself what is possible for our community, what is possible for our young people, what would it take in order to build a Durham where every single child, regardless of race, regardless of family income, regardless of educational attainment of their parents or immigration status, truly can have the educational opportunities and experiences to be successful and to continue to be stretched, to be part of making that true for the community has been a life-changing experience for me. Um, I did not get into this thinking that I'd be the ED within my time, and so that has also been a wild ride um, that I'm really grateful for. Um, but yeah, that's you know you. What has that looked like on the ground in terms of being with an organization for ten years? Um, and as we kind of said before we started, we are all ten years out of 
are we more than 10 years out of school? Oh, my God. We're, we're, um, uh, we're, no, we're not yet 10 years out of school. We're eight. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be 10 years. You're going to be 10 years out of school. But it's, it's rare that. Dating myself that, over here. <laughs> <laughs> that our peers have been with the same job or organization, especially with nonprofit work and especially with activism and social justice oriented work. There's a high burnout rate. There's a high rate of turnover. So can you talk about sort of why you've stayed and what staying with the organization has looked like for you personally? Yeah. I want to live in a world that is just and equitable. And I believe that we live in a world that as a result of structural racism and poverty systematically shuts out students of color, students who experience poverty from the opportunities they need to have access to social mobility. And that's infuriating to me. Um, And the stories, you know, of people like me end up being the stories that we hold on to as the successes of the people that make it out. And I want to imagine a world where we don't need individual success stories because everyone is able to succeed. And I believe that that is possible. I believe that in our community in Durham, we have the political will, we have the resources and to put our money where our mouth is to make sure that that is true for us. And I felt committed to doing the work, the day-to-day grind of thinking about what does it look like to make that happen in Durham. And I think Student U, I've been able to stay there because my personal values and the values of the institution align. And I think that the work and what we've learned and our students and their families have led us and have pushed us. And we have consistently been willing to be pushed. Um, And I recognize that that is unique. Um, I'm also really fortunate to work with an incredible staff um, who are dedicated and passionate and ask hard questions of themselves, ask hard questions of our work, who show up for our students in ways that are within the bounds of their jobs and outside of the bounds of their job because they understand that what we do is Um, an honor to be able to build the kind of deep relationships with students and families that we get to have. And our students are brilliant. And to be able to, you know, in some ways, help them see their dreams, carry their dreams when they're not yet able to carry them and watch them grow and evolve and start to take on their own dreams and build new ones and then see, see them doing that for their peers and each other is pretty um, meaningful to me and to why I stayed because I think the hopes of the organizations have become true in my own life. I think I am transformed as a result of the work that I get to do every day and that's a gift and I have been stretched to take on leadership opportunities that I didn't necessarily seek or thought that I wanted. (laughs) Um, I've been given opportunities to fail and to try again and I've been also in this stage of my career have been able to open doors for people and to center the voice of my community and to really say how can I model leading in a way that is humble where I'm not the most important player but I'm part of the fabric of an institution that wants people to be able to lead themselves um and I recognize that that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Um, and I've 
I my job has never gotten stale, stale right? I feel like in the past decade, because Student U has grown so much, the institution that I described today is different than the institution that we were last year and will be different than the institution will be in a year. And I think that's amazing. Um, so I've been able to see us in some ways an educational startup become a mature version of itself um, and still hopeful that we can continue to grow in the ways that we also want our community to be reflecting the ability to change and be pushed and be stretched to be who we can be for our, pe- for our young people. How has your, well, I guess my first question based on that is, where is home for you? What do you think of as home? Oh, man, that is <laughs> such, that's a whole book. Um, <laughs> I mean, when people ask me where home is, I say it's the Ivory Coast, right? And I I think I have multiple homes. I think home is where my people are, which is the Ivory Coast. My parents still live there. and. I have a sibling there. Home is Montreal. I have four siblings who live in Montreal. And so when I'm there, I feel like home um, because in those places I feel loved, I feel seen, I feel hopeful, I feel rest, um, I feel challenged. I feel that Durham is home for me, that I have community, um, and I am invested in making this place better. and so this feels like home to you. I feel loved. I feel seen. I feel cared for. I feel challenged. I feel held in the ways that I need to. So I think as I've gotten older, because I have family everywhere and so many people that I loved, I think I recognize that, you know, home is in some ways in our heart, right? The the physical place gives us access to a feeling, but that feeling can be present in a lot of places. Um, and so in 50 years, if I'm not working at Student U and I walk through the... <laughs> the walls of the W.G. Pearson Center, it will feel like home. I will access feelings and memories that like make this place have the um, the place that it has in my heart, um, which is pretty significant at this point 10 years in. Hmm. What has your, I know when you first moved here, you described kind of being adopted by this clique of white girls who maybe thought of you as their project and then you had this experience of going to high school and people not necessarily knowing your background. And then now you've been in Durham for a long time, which has um, a really large African-American community. So I wonder for you, this is like a 19-part question that I'm going to try to make into <laughs> one question. We'll work with it. But your, I guess your relationship with your African identity and how has that shifted, as I'm sure in many spaces people have perceived you as African-American? Um, maybe before you open your mouth, maybe even after you open your mouth? Yeah, great question. <laughs> um, so I think what's interesting, I think phenotypically, people very quickly, like, in some ways exoticize me, right? Like, the first question is, like, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And when I'm like, I'm from Durham, they're like, no. <laughs> where are you really from? Like, North Carolina? Um, so I think in some ways that is helpful, right, to, like, center me like I to most people mm-hmm. am not African-American, but I'm put in spaces, right, where I am given opportunity in some ways to, like, be an advocate for the community. And so I think for me, managing all those relationships is, like, 
one being very clear about the ways in which my experience as a black person in America is in solidarity with African Americans in the US, right? The reality is that when I walk through a door anywhere, I'm treated as a black person in the US. The fact that I'm African does not afford me privileges um, that other people do not have. So that, that feels like a place, but I think it's also important to name the places where my lived experience and my history does not does not give me the ability to fully understand. And so I think I live at the intersection of building deep relationships in order to learn, right, to sit in rooms and to understand, like, what what is the deep legacy of slavery in the United States and what does it, how has it been experienced by African Americans and how does it still live today from an academic standpoint but from a personal standpoint and how to be able to understand that to place myself in the narrative and recognize mm-hmm. where I can where I can advocate and when I need to step back and say this is not a conversation for me, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's important for me to always say like to really listen to my students, their parents, their families and to take my cues from them to be able to be in the room and say like something is off here and these are the reasons why and to also invite other people into space and say like I'm not the right person to have this conversation because this is not my experience. Um, And so I think I'm my personal practice is to be really committed first to be in deep, intentional relationship with members of my community across different racial background is important to me to learn. I think I study the history of race in the U.S. in order to fully understand and comprehend it, to be able to highlight it, to name how it is moving, to lead my team well and myself well, and then to recognize the limits of my experience. Um, And I feel that that is really, really important um, for myself in order to do my work in the most honest way, in the most meaningful and impactful way. So we have time for one more question. And I want to ask one that we like to ask all of our guests who come on the show what does self-care and joyful activity look like for you? Um, great question. So I dance still. I take uh, West African dance classes twice a week, Tuesday nights and Saturdays. I very rarely miss those. It's a pretty big part of my life. Um, I'm an introvert, so not talking and being in my body is really helpful. I like to cook. I'm learning how to not do work when I'm not in the office, so I can't (laughs) say that I've mastered that skill. I take more vacation now than I've ever had in my career, um, probably because I experienced some burnout. Um, I have a therapist, which I think is joyful self-care because I have a big job and a complicated life when it feels important to make space to care for myself. I journal, I go to the Eno, I drink good wine, I sleep. I take baths, all of those things. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're so glad. So you just heard Alexandra Zagbayou on She and Her, and you can learn about Student U if you're interested in supporting the work. How? www.studentudurham.org, or you can follow us on Instagram at Student U Durham and on Facebook. 
perfect. And you can follow us at She and Her Radio on Facebook and Instagram. And you can catch all of our show archive on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcast, and at sheandherradio.com. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode of our season. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.